if you want to open up your Bible, that'd be great. We're going to be in Psalm 22 this evening. And uh, so tonight we're starting a uh, three-part series. And we're going to be going over Psalm 22 tonight, Psalm 23, uh, next week, Lord willing, and then 24 on the following week. And these have been called the shepherd psalms by some. They've, uh, some have pointed out that uh, Psalm 22 deals with the past, Psalm 23 would relate to the present, and then Psalm 24 would relate to the future. Charles Spurgeon called these three psalms the cross, the crook, and the crown, referring to Christ, obviously. In our case, we're actually going to be looking at the three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, not in that order. Uh, it'll be priest in Psalm 22, prophet in Psalm 23, and uh, king in Psalm 24. And Psalm 22, actually, I'm not really going to bring this out, but it shows us all three offices in this psalm. Uh, but in our case tonight, I'm going to be primarily talking about the office of high priest as we go through the psalm. Uh, psalm 22 is a psalm of David, and uh, we don't know exactly on what occasion it was written. Um, it may have been something that David was going through at the time. It may have been uh, David was reflecting on his life, and uh, he penned this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Either way, uh, the psalm is divided into two main sections. Uh, verses 1 through 21 comprise the first section being a series of complaints uh, to God about the situation David finds himself in, and then subsequent expressions of confidence and faith in him. And you'll see he kind of goes back and forth between those two several times. The second section is verses 22 through 31, uh, being a hymn of praise to God for his deliverance. Now, before I start, uh, it's a lot of, there's a lot of verses here. There's 31 verses, and I'm probably going to skip things that are important. And I'm probably not going to talk about things that you think, well, why didn't he... I didn't even mention this. It's just because I don't have a lot of time. So that's why. I'm not trying to skip things that are important. I just don't have a lot of time to get into all of it. So let's uh, start with verses 1 through 2. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear and in the night season, and I'm not silent. They're famous words, obviously. And uh, these words, at one time or another, are the prayer of every Christian. The worst affliction a Christian can receive is not the loss of material possessions. It's not poor health. It's not people who persecute you. And it isn't even the loss of life itself. It is actually a loss of communion with our God. And this is why David is so deeply troubled in this psalm. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not that God has actually forsaken him, but this is the feeling that David has, that, that God has abandoned him for, for some reason. And when God, for his own good reasons and for our own benefit, withdraws himself from us, we feel as though our prayers don't reach past the ceiling. We feel that our Bible reading maybe is dull and, and, and difficult to do. Uh, we, we don't perceive any favor from God. We don't sense his presence with us. And we feel disturbed and unsettled by this, as we should be. 
And if this is the case with you, then you can take comfort in this psalm. Because David felt this way. Christ himself felt this way before you. And it's actually a good sign. It's a good sign for you when when God withdraws his comforting presence that it disturbs you. If it didn't disturb you, that would be a problem. Right? When you lose that sense of God's comfort, it should be disturbing to you at, at one level. In contrast, if our complaint to God is more often along the lines of, my God, my God, why have you made me sick? Or why have you made me poor? Or why did I lose my job? Or, or whatever worldly circumstances we find ourselves in. If we're too concerned with those things, then maybe there is something wrong with us. Maybe we're too content with worldly prosperity. Now, it's not that bringing those types of complaints before God is a bad thing. We should bring those things before God. But if that's what makes us content and losing God's presence doesn't really bother us, then there is something wrong there. It's also important to note that the withdrawal of God from us is not necessarily a sign that we have sinned against him in some way. It may be, but it's not necessarily. Because as I already mentioned, Christ himself prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he was without sin. It isn't a sin to be deserted by God either, to feel that God has left us. That is not a sinful thing. And as we'll see later, the psalmist actually takes comfort that people had gone before him and had felt these same things. And they had waited on God and God had delivered them in due time. As I already mentioned, the psalm is a psalm of David, but it is specifically a prophecy of Christ as our great high priest. Christ quotes the verse, uh, the first verse in Matthew 27, 46, and indeed the whole psalm is a prophecy about Christ. And it so vividly portrays what Christ went through that one commentator actually said this psalm seems to be less a prophecy than a history. Or in other words, the psalm seems to be more a history of what Christ went through than it is a prophecy of what he will go through. When Christ uttered these words, my God, my God, it was as though he was claiming the whole psalm as his own. This psalm, he says, is about me. And while we, as we go through this, we will take into account David's original context, and yet it's very clear to us, looking back, on this, It's very clear to us that the Holy Spirit penned this to be about the sufferings of Christ as our high priest. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in, the th- in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The purpose of Christ coming in the flesh was this, was what happened in this psalm was to save his people, was to be their great, great high priest. As he hangs on the cross, he claims this psalm as his own to show that what had been prophesied by David is what's being fulfilled by him on the cross. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So the psalmist puts his faith in God. And notice that he says, you're holy, you are enthroned in the praises of Israel. 
notice that he doesn't linger long on this complaint. And that's probably a good idea for us too. We probably shouldn't linger on our complaints too long before looking to Christ. We are prone to lingering too, too long on what we feel is our, our desperate situation. And yet here, David, though evidently he's horribly distressed, he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He almost immediately turns his gaze from himself onto God. In prayer, there is no navel-gazing. You know what navel-gazing is? It's when you're looking at your navel. <laughs> there is no navel-gazing in prayer. It's interesting, he says, but you are holy. He doesn't say, but you are merciful. He doesn't say here, you are faithful. He is all those things, of course, but he says you are holy. And for David, the holiness of God is evidence of his faithfulness to his people. Calvin points this out in his, his commentary. He says, David isn't eyeing here the eternality of God or the immutability of God. What he's saying is that his holiness is evidence of his faithfulness. And because he's holy, he will be faithful. And so that is what David uses. This is the shield that he uses to the temptation of distrust. If God is holy and faithful to Israel, then surely he will be faithful to me. How, can he be, how could he be, do anything else to the people whom he has chosen? Additionally, David sees that God has been faithful, as I mentioned, to prior generations. And he concludes that he will be faithful to him as well. Verses 4 and 5. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So this teaches us today that we should not look at our own circumstances. That is not the ground of our confidence. When things are going well, that shouldn't give us confidence. When things are going bad, that should not shake our confidence. It should always be because of who God is, of who Christ is and what he's done for us. We look to God, we look at how he upheld people in the past. People who are in similar circumstances to ours, people who are in completely different circumstances to ours, and we know that God is faithful and that should support us. Verses 6 through 8. Uh, here we see that David humbles himself before God. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And clearly this is about Christ on the cross. Think about this. Christ himself owns this psalm. He said, this is my psalm. This is about me. And that means that as he was hanging on the tree, he felt himself to be less than a man, a worm, the lowest of the low, completely helpless, completely powerless, able to do nothing for himself. And that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while men in and of themselves, we are worms, Christ who is God made himself a worm in order to fulfill the office of the high priest so that when we are in distress, we can come to God, even though we are the ones who are the worms. Remember what uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what does that mean for us? It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, we can't be reminded often enough of what Christ did for us. We're very prone to forget it. We're prone to take it for granted. We're prone to hear it, and it doesn't affect us, right? But we need to be reminded often that this is what Christ did. He, the eternal God, became a man and was crucified for our sins. And because of that, we can come before the throne of grace, not meekly, not hoping maybe the Lord will hear us, but we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. In verses 7 and 8, he sees no help from man, right? He sees only derision. They ridicule him. Uh, they scorn him. Uh, it says, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And indeed, think about this. The very men who crucified Christ, who actually drove the nails through his hands and through his feet, benefited from those acts. What did Christ pray when he was on the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And is it possible for Christ to pray contrary to the will of his Father? It is not, is it? So when Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the Father forgave them. And I, th- I think that some of those Roman soldiers, the ones that Christ prayed for, came to faith later. So imagine being a Roman soldier who actually drove the nails through Christ's hands and then later came to faith in him. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, we may have not driven the nails through the flesh, but we certainly did nail him to the cross by our own sins. And yet, here we are tonight, his people. So again, we've seen a complaint and praise. We just saw another complaint, and now we see another, another expression of God's faithfulness in verses 9 through 10. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Even from infancy, God was his God, David's God and Christ's God. Let's think, if God is our God when we're infants, completely helpless, completely useless, only needy, why would he cast us off now? He's raised us to serve him as his people, and he will not let us fall. Remember, too, that Christ was not born in a palace. He was born in a stable. He was not born under a ruler who cared for him. He was born under a ruler who tried to murder him and murdered a lot of people to try to get that done. So though, may, though, though people may surround you and people may try to take your own life, and they may end up taking your own life, God himself still will hold you in his hands. He will preserve you even if you do die. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian when they're killed is they go straight to heaven. They get to be in the presence of God. 
God begins his care for us at the earliest possible hour. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. And that care doesn't stop and it cannot stop because God is always faithful to his people. Even when we aren't. Again, he, uh, he calls out for God to help him. He raises another complaint in verses 11 through 13. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The psalmist says there, are, there is no one here to help. There was no one there to help Christ. He's on the cross. His disciples had abandoned him. There was no help for him. And there are times when God allows us to be in similar circumstances. When we, he forces us into places where we become so desperate that we can only go to him, that there is only help for him. And he does this to teach us that only he can deliver us and that we can only trust in him and him alone. And this is reflective of what Christ accomplished for us, too. He willingly put himself in a place where nobody could help him but his father, and and his father did help him. In verses 14 through 18, his complaint continues, and we see Christ suffering. He says, uh, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Christ suffered not only outward afflictions, but inward turmoil as well. He felt abandoned by his father. Uh, He says, his heart is melted like wax within him. There wasn't just physical suffering. It was all-encompassing. It was psychological suffering. It was emotional suffering. And yet, despite all of this, he willingly did this. Remember when he prayed in the garden? He prayed that God would take the cup from him, that his father would spare him. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And Calvin Calvin commented on this. He says, uh, verse 14, we ought to take courage. And when through infirmity we are, as it were, almost lifeless, we should direct our groanings to God, beseeching him that he would graciously be pleased to restore us to strength and, and vigor. Again, these verses are a very clear, a very obvious uh, prophecy of Christ's crucifixion. So obvious so that uh, Matthew Poole, who commented on this, he said that these words cannot properly be applied to David, but only to Christ. Again, such a clear prophecy as I pointed out already. It doesn't read so much like prophecy, it reads like history. Like this is exactly what happened. And again, he has this long complaint, but then he immediately turns uh, his gaze from his troubles and his enemies back to the Lord, who's only, who alone is able to save him. Verses 19 through 21 read, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. While my strength hasten to help me, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. 
Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So he says he's, dogs are surrounding him, lions are surrounding him. And remember, when the power of the dog or the power of the lion comes against you, the dog is on a chain. And on the other end of the chain is God himself. And while we may be hurt, God allows these things to happen for our good. The most horrible thing that ever happened is happened to Christ. Nothing that bad can happen to us. And as Romans 8 points out, everything that happens happens for the good of his people. Any questions on section 1? All right, excellent. Can I make one comment? I, um, I thought about the suffering that Christ did, and I thought about the anguish he had in accepting the fact that he needed to go to the cross and the, the physical uh, suffering that he experienced with the, with the crown and the mocking and the whipping. But I also have thought about the spiritual suffering that he endured. And maybe that's the psychological that you mentioned. <laughs> but to be separated from his father yeah. that he had never been separated from. Yeah. You know, that, that uh, is pretty significant. Yeah. And so, like you said, it was a, a total all-encompassing experience that mm-hmm. none of us will probably ever experience no. to that degree. We won't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we forget about the psychological or the emotional or the spiritual suffering that Christ went through for us. I mean, the physical stuff is bad enough. I don't think, most people actually didn't even survive the scourging, from what I understand. A lot of times when someone was scourged on their back, it opened up their back so much that they'd, they would bleed out and die just from that. And yet Christ survived that and then went to the cross. And uh, so it's easy to see that. It's kind of easy to picture that. But then the spiritual suffering he went through, I don't think, I don't think we'll ever understand how horrible that was. So section two, as we often see in Psalms, we see it starts out, Everything's really bad, and the psalmist is in trouble, and he's praying to God, and then we, it ends with a hymn of praise, and that's exactly what happens here. Um, starting in verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cries to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. So David's prayer is answered. And so he says he will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving uh, because God has aided him. And in the same way, Christ knew when he was on the cross, he knew that he was going to be delivered. And how do we know that? Well, one reason we know that is because he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And remember how was it that Christ was able to go through these sufferings? Did he just think, well, this too, this too will pass, like parents say, right? Is that what he did? No, he, he, he was able to endure because of the joy that was set before him, because he was able to look beyond the cross and know that the Father would deliver him, that he would eventually be glorified. And so we too, when we suffer, we should not stare at our enemies. 
We should not stare at our circumstances and meditate on those things. We can acknowledge those things and assess them, but we need to look past the cross and look to the joy that's set before us. In verse 22, he says he will do this publicly in the midst of the congregation, in the assembly. And this is reiterated in in verse uh, 25 as well. And this points to us that there are no solo Christians. It's good that you're all here tonight because we all need each other. And the most appropriate place to celebrate God's deliverance is in the midst of his people, in the church. It's a great encouragement to those who are suffering when they see others who have been suffering and are delivered from it. Verse 24 says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. It's interesting. The verse says, My God, my God. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then here in verse 24, it says, He did not hide his face from him. He heard his cry. So if you feel as though God is not listening to your prayer, verse 24 is telling you that he is listening to your prayer. He does hear his people. And that's a fear that needs to be dispelled. God does not hide his face from his, from his people because of their afflictions. And though we may cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He does not forsake any of his own. We may go through the, fa- the valley of the shadow of death. It may seem like darkness is surrounding us. We may be surrounded by dogs and lions, but the Lord is there with us, supporting us. Romans 8.31 gives us this promise. If God is for us, who can be against us? One of the verses that made me a Calvinist. Uh, Verses 26 through 31, uh, we see the, the conclusion of the psalm here. This is the fruit of the death and resurrection of Christ and and the subsequent proclamation of the gospel. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. So, a few things to note here. First, the great high priest is called so because the result of his death and resurrection is in these verses. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. They'll repent, in other words. The posterity shall serve him, and all glory will be his, and they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. This is the result of the death and resurrection of Christ, that people all over the world will repent and and turn from their sins. There's echoes of Isaiah 53 here. Verse 10 says, When you make his soul an offering for sin, Christ's soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, what Christ set forth to accomplish by his life, death, and resurrection, he will accomplish. There's no question about that. And why is that? Because he is the great high priest. Second, we see the confidence that David and Christ had in their Lord. 
though it's unclear whether he has been delivered in the midst of this psalm, he still praises God. If he hasn't been delivered, he is praising him because he knows he is going to be delivered. And then thirdly, he's able to praise God in the midst of his sufferings. Now recall what Job said to his lovely wife when she told him to curse at God and die because of the situation that Job found himself in. What did he say to her? He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? If we are content when things are going well and we are discontent and upset and angry with God when things are not going well, we are like Job's foolish wife. So we've, we see that Christ is the great high priest in Psalm 22, but what exactly does this mean for us? Well, several things. First, it means that he offers both, both prayer and sacrifice for us. Uh, he, right now, he is interceding for us in heaven before the throne of God. And our, his prayers and sacrifice were offered while he was here on earth. Secondly, it means that his prayer and sacrifice are effective. They actually are effective because he is our great high priest. All the priests prior to Christ were just mere men. Christ is God. They were priests, but they were nothing more than a priest. Christ is our priest, our great high priest. He is a prophet, and he is our king as well. They were sinners who had to make sacrifices for their own sins, and for the sins of the people. Christ, however, was completely holy, undefiled, innocent, and he didn't sacrifice something else. He sacrificed himself to make atonement for the sins of his people. They were priests by succession. Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. We see that in Hebrews 7. They were shadows and types of Christ. He is the embodiment. He is the real thing. They sacrificed animals. Christ sacrificed himself. Their sacrifices could not remove sin. They could not purge the conscience and make it clean. Christ's sacrifice does exactly that. Their sacrifices had to repeat, be repeated over and over and over, year after year. Christ's sacrifice was done once, and it was finished. Third, because he is the perfect high priest, it means that we have a duty to act accordingly. First, we have to acknowledge ourselves to be sinners. We need to feel the burden of our sins on us. And then we need to abhor them. We need to confess them and repent of them. In the Old Testament, if you read Leviticus 4, everyone who brought a sin offering, they brought the animal to the priest, they laid their hand on the head, and that signified that their sin was going on that animal, and then the priest killed the animal. That is what we do when we come to Christ, metaphorically speaking. We put our sins on Christ, we confess them to him, and we own his sacrifice as our own. That what he did truly was for us. We call him on him in faith to cleanse our sins because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Secondly, we go to Christ because, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Coming to God through Christ means 
that we receive his ransom as perfect as con- and complete, completely fulfilling the law. We have no more deeds to do in terms of our own righteousness. We come to him on the, race, on the basis that our ransom has been paid by Christ. And we come to him in the name of Christ for everything that we need in this life and the next. Our illumination, so that we understand God's word, our comfort, our sanctification, our preservation in this life, as well as all of our temporal needs as well. Because we know that he who did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Christ died for you. This verse says, he is going to give you everything you need freely. And that's a great encouragement to prayer. And then finally, the intercession of Christ as high priest means that we ought to pray fervently. I'm going to read a lengthy quote from Wilhelmus Abrockel from the Christian's Reasonable Service. Stay with me here. I'm almost done. He says, the intercession of Christ renders much support in prayer. If one considers and believes that every prayer, every sigh, and the lifting up of the soul heavenward for God's spirit and grace is a fruit of Christ's intercession, whereby each believer receives the Holy Spirit, that he brings every motion of the soul and the expression of one's desires before the throne. So Christ brings these things that we we want before the throne of God presents it to his Father, and then all that transpires in his name in reference to his merits and by his Spirit, that on the basis of his merits, Christ's merits, these prayers can rightfully be heard. And furthermore, he makes their desires his own. So our holy desires, Christ makes his own as he brings them before the Father, adding his incense to them, thus making their prayers, our prayers, pleasing to him, If all this is considered and believed, this will greatly stimulate prayer. If that doesn't make you you want to go pray, I don't know what will. (laughs) Christ himself presenting our own prayers to God as though they are his prayers. That should make us want to pray more. And then finally, we can take comfort. We can take great comfort in our own sufferings because Christ suffered for you. Remember verse 24 from the psalm. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. And remember, when you suffer, you will be tempted. You will be tempted to be discouraged. Your own sins will discourage you. But remember what Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, this wonderful psalm that presents Christ to us in, in the glory of his death on the cross for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us in giving us your word. We pray that we would receive it into our hearts, that we would meditate on what we've learned tonight, and that we would see how wonderful and beautiful it is that Christ himself was our great high priest, that he willingly suffered for us and sacrificed himself for us. Lord, we pray for any hardened hearts tonight that you would work in them, that they would see the beauty of Christ in his death 
and resurrection and that, that, that they would put their faith in him tonight. We ask you all these things and your blessing upon our evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.